Life is complicated, <clears throat> and people are hard to understand. We may wonder, what goes through the mind of a person? Why do people conduct themselves as they do? There's a certain mystery to how people respond to various different situations. Jeroboam is one of those people that are, that's kind of a, a mystery to me. In one sense, Jeremiah, Jeroboam makes no sense. He's filled with contradictions. God granted to Jeroboam many privileges and responsibilities, and yet he squanders them all away. There's no question that Jeroboam knows better in the decisions that he makes. Jeremiah is an example of a person who is convicted but not converted. Convicted but not converted. He hears the word of God. He understands the word of God, but yet consistently does not yield to but resists and even opposes the word of God. He resists the grace of God time and time again. But there is another way in which there are so many that are like Jeroboam, and that is when life is difficult they cry out to God and want his help and they want his deliverance. And when things are going smoothly, then they have no desire to praise God or to enter into any kind of relationship or true worship of God. But we're going to see this morning that Jeroboam ultimately and finally re totally resists and rejects the grace of God in his life, and it's a tragic, tragic end. So this morning, we want to focus on the grace of God, the goodness of God, what we know about God, and the importance of not resisting or opposing that grace. We begin this morning by looking at the fact that Jeroboam rejects the grace and knowledge of God even as he seeks the counsel of Ahijah in reference to the sickness of Jeroboam's son. We begin with 1 Kings 14.1, which reads, At that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam fell sick. The account before us picks up where the narrative left off last week. At that time is an association with the events that took place in chapter 13. So we need to be reminded of what characterized that time. It says at that time. What were the events? What happened in association with this sickness of Jeroboam's son? Well, at that time, the idol worship was thoroughly denounced by the man of God. At that time, Jeroboam had resisted what God had said about the idol worship, and had reached out his hand and wanted to seize the man of God for the judgment that the man of God had pronounced, and as he reached out his hand, it withered. And he could not pull it back again. He had lost all control of his hand. So he beseeches the man of God to pray. 
and to ask God to restore his hand to health. God in his grace and goodness responds to the entreaty of the man of God and Jeroboam's hand is healed. At that time is the time in which the man of God failed to completely follow the direction of God's word, was deceived, and the man of God died. At that time, despite all that had taken place, Jeroboam continues in his false worship. Now, the sickness of Jeroboam's son is just the next shoe to drop. It's just the next problem, the next negative event that transpires in the life of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is to see, and ultimately we too are to see, that these things are related. At that time, points out that there is an interconnection that is taking place in which God is consistently and repeatedly dealing with Jeroboam in grace, and Jeroboam consistently and repeatedly resists that grace of God. It's at that time that Ahijah is going to be consulted by Jeroboam concerning Jeroboam's child who is sick. It is perhaps helpful to reflect upon those from whom Jeroboam did not seek counsel. He is going to send his wife to Ahijah. And we might ask the question, why Ahijah? Well, first we have to ask the question, why not the old prophet that was living in Bethel? The man that had predicted the death of the man of God. We might ask the question, why didn't he seek the advice of the, the priests and the prophets of the false worship that he had established? Why did he not go to them, but rather decides to go to Ahijah? Well, obviously, he had no confidence in them. Obviously, he did not put his trust in them. For he knew, he knew, he had enough experience, he had enough awareness to know that that worship was false and unreliable. After all, he had initiated that worship. He had prepared that worship. He had concocted that worship out of his own mind. So he knows that there's no validity in that false worship, so he turns to Ahijah. Ahijah was the one who announced that Jeroboam would be king in verse 2. Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, and it may be not known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, and now this is how he is described, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Thus, what Ahijah had said came to pass. And Ahijah had been favorable to Jeroboam in the past. He had spoken good things to Jeroboam. Thus, Jeroboam may have had a glimmer of hope that Ahijah may have some good news concerning Jeroboam and 
the outcome of his son's illness. He sends his wife to speak to Ahijah. However, Jeroboam wants to seek counsel of Ahijah while remaining in anonymity. And let's focus on the extent, the lengths that Jeroboam went to to guard his anonymity. First, to maintain his anonymity, Jeroboam sends his wife to Ahijah rather than going himself. In verse 2, Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, arise, you go. He's not going to go, he's going to send his wife. Secondly, to maintain anonymity, Jeroboam has his wife wear a disguise so that she will not be seen as Jeroboam's wife. In verse 2, Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. So go, but be sure to wear a disguise because I don't want to hide you to know that you're my wife. One can wonder why the anonymity would be so important to Jeroboam. Especially because it was the prophet from whom Jeroboam was seeking to keep his identity. It isn't that he didn't want the people to know that he was seeking Ahijah's counsel. It isn't that he didn't want the priests to know that he was seeking Ahijah's counsel. He didn't want Ahijah to know that he was seeking Ahijah's counsel. Like many things, the whole premise seems odd. For in the mind of Jeroboam, he's going to ask his wife to go and disguise herself, not let it be known that she's her, his husband, and expect that Ahijah isn't going to wonder, why is a strange woman coming to me and asking about the king's son? It doesn't make much sense, but it appears that Jeroboam doesn't want to acknowledge to Ahijah of his need for God. He doesn't want to be associated with seeking Ahijah's counsel. He wasn't wanting to be identified with God. Jeroboam's wife does as she's instructed, verses 3 and 4. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now we want to focus on God's grace in dealing with Jeroboam. God graciously reveals to Jeroboam and to Jeroboam's wife that God knows all things. God knows all things. We're told at the end of verse 4, now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. So Ahijah is blind. Ahijah is blind. Nevertheless, 
Jeroboam says to his wife, disguise yourself and go to his residence. Either he so was out of touch with Elijah that he didn't know he was blind, or again, it's just one of those incongruities that makes no sense. Wear a disguise so that the blind man can't see you. But so often, sin does not make sense. So often, the things that we do run contrary to what we know to be wise and right. But the disguise does not succeed. God reveals to Ahijah all that Ahijah needs to know. Verses 5 and 6. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Come in. Wife of Jeroboam. Disguise did not work. And not only that, it reveals the fact that he knows that she is disguised. Where it says in verse 5, why do you pretend to be another? Now remember, he's blind. But not only is he blind, but he just hears the sound of her footsteps. She hasn't even reached the door yet. And he says to her, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? The disguise does not succeed because the Lord makes known to Ahijah the identity of Jeroboam's wife. Verse 5, the Lord said to Ahijah, behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. The irony, of course, is that this guy was not needed, for Ahijah could not see. But God, in his grace, makes it clear to Jeroboam's wife the futility of all that Jeroboam has asked of her. For before she even came to the door or appeared before Ahijah's blind eyes, Ahijah reveals her identity. And further, reveals that he knows that she is trying to hide her identity. Why do you pretend to be another? And still further, before Jeroboam's wife is able to even ask the question, he says to her at the end of verse 6, for I am charged with unbearable news for you. He knows everything that she's going to say before she says it. Why do I keep emphasizing the grace of God? Because she should have known, she should have understood from the events that took place that it's impossible to hide anything from the Lord. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. There was no hiding 
the sin of Jeroboam from the very understanding of God. But there again is where we need to stop and realize that all too often we act as though we can hide things from God. And Jeroboam had sought to hide his identity from Ahijah, but he couldn't hide his identity from God. And likewise, a lot of times people seek to hide their sins from other people or even from Sunday school teachers or pastors or people that they associate with God's work and God's ministry but fail to understand that you really can't hide anything from God. So God graciously reveals that truth to Jeroboam's wife and ultimately to Jeroboam. God in his grace makes known why the child is going to die. God not only reveals the fact that the child is going to die, but even more significantly the reason for the child's death. You look at verse 12. Verse 12, it said, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. But before he declares the death of the child, he gives the reason. First, there's the source of Ahijah's message in verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Okay, So Ahijah is saying, what I'm about to say to you doesn't come from me, it comes from God. Hijah, once again, is pointing the direction to God. This isn't just about me, this is about God. And he gives the reason for God's discipline and the sickness of the child. If you look at verse 7, it says, Tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because, because. Many times we want to know why certain things happen, and we don't know why they happened. Jeroboam didn't ask the question of why the child was sick. He just wanted to know the outcome. He wasn't interested in the reason. He just wanted to know what's going to happen to the child. Is the child going to live or die? But, but God speaks of the reason for the sickness. Verse 7, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. I've been gracious to you. I entrusted this kingdom to you. But you have not responded in kind. Instead, Jeroboam resisted the grace of God, and Jeroboam is guilty. In the middle of verse 8, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which is right in my eyes. 
But you have done evil above all who are before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking to anger and have cast me behind your back. As Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary, and I quote, Ahijah clearly categorizes the king's offenses as a sin against grace. Yahweh had been so good to Jeroboam. I raised you up. I placed you as leader, and I tore the kingdom from the house of David, and I gave it to you. But Jeroboam had not responded in kind. But you have not been like my servant David, so that you acted wickedly, and you made for yourself other gods. But you have thrown behind your back. Jeroboam had received grace and despised it. That's why his dynasty would be annihilated. End quote. Then we're given the form of God's discipline. Ahijah announces God's judgment, verse 10. Therefore, therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. And will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man brings up dung until it is gone. Anyone bringing, belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Then we have the situation with the child, verse 12. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. God in his goodness acknowledges kindness to the child. Verse 13, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jerusalem shall come to the grave. Why? For God in his exercise of judgment is consistent in dealing with individuals. It says in verse 13, Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. So despite the evils of Jeroboam, God says, but I find something favorable in his son. Therefore, he's going to have an honorable death. An honorable death. There's also the justice in God's judgment. As you read a passage like this, it can readily seem as though, you know, you have all these quote-unquote innocent people that are suffering because of the acts of one man, Jeroboam, and, you know, his future generations and the whole nation is going to go to, to pot and all these things are happening and it appears like it's just because of the acts of one man. But if you look at verse 14 and 15, it says this, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today and henceforth. The Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of the good hand that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates. And now notice the reason, because... They have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. You see, the future generations are going to be guilty. They themselves are going to be sinners. They're not just going to be paying the consequences for Jeroboam's actions. They themselves are going to be worthy of the judgments that come upon them. Very, very important to keep in mind. And Jeroboam's offspring are not just innocent people who are going to be destroyed. They follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam. They are every bit as wicked as he is. 
So God's judgment is just. But having said that, notice verse 16. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. But the biggest culprit of all is Jeroboam. Because of his influence. Because he is the king. Because he's the one who initiated the false worship. He's the one who concocted it. He's the one who commanded these, these idols to be built. He is the one who set the tone and the direction of Israel. Now they're responsible for following. They're responsible because they should know better, but he's the instigator. So Jeroboam has the greatest culpability while they are still culpable. Then we find the fulfillment of God's judgment, verses 17 and 18. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah, and she came to the threshold of the house. The child died, and all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Then we have the unrepentant Jeroboam. Verses 19 and 20. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, hold there written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers. And Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So God is gracious. He reigns for 22 years. And even Nadab, his son, reigns in his place. And God said he's going to be destroyed. And of course he is. Going to be destroyed. As you read an account like this, you kind of scratch your head and say, okay, what's the, what's the point? Well, we understand the history of it. We understand that the kingdom's going to change hands and why. But as we stand back, we've got to ask some more basic questions. First, what motivates Jeroboam? What motivates Jeroboam? Why did he send his wife to ask Ahijah what was going to happen to his son? Was that just idle curiosity? Was, was, was that just wanting to know the future? For you see, God had made it very, very clear to Jeroboam that the reason he's sick is because of you and your sinfulness. Here is God's grace. Here is God's saying to Jeroboam, repent. Repent. Jeroboam never does. Jeroboam doesn't act upon what he hears. When he hears that, that his son is going to die, when he hears that the kingdom is going to be taken away, when he hears of all that is going to happen, Jeroboam does nothing. And so we find this consistency in Jeroboam that time and time again, God confronts Jeroboam about his sin. He sometimes seeks God in the midst of his trouble 
as soon as the trouble is over, he's right back to his sin again and does not repent and does not change. So we can ask the question, why would he seek to understand what's going to happen to his son if he's unwilling to do anything about it? If he's not willing to be conformed to the word of God as it's revealed to him? Well, I don't know the answer to that, so let me ask another question to which I don't have the answer to. Why do people come to church and yet do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? Why do some people come week after week and hear the gospel, they know that they are sinners, they know that Jesus Christ died for their sin, they know that the only way of eternal life is by placing faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, and they know that in order to place that faith and trust in Christ, they need to repent, they need to acknowledge their sinfulness, they need to commit their, their selves to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're unwilling to do that, They don't want to acknowledge their own sinfulness. Like Jeroboam, they want to hide it. <laughs> they, they want to pretend it doesn't exist. So they refuse to place their faith and trust in Christ. They refuse the gift of salvation, but yet still come. I don't get it. I don't get it. But it's not important that I get it. What is important is it happens. It happens. And I am very concerned that it's very possible that there is someone sitting here this morning who have heard the gospel message, know the gospel message, understand the gospel message, and have consistently resisted and rejected it. So my challenge to you this morning is, if that's you, why? Why are you here? Why do you come? Why do you just add to your culpability? Don't reject the grace of God. If you stand in need of the Savior, if you haven't asked Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, then I implore you to do so this morning. And if you do know the Lord as your Savior, perhaps there is in your own life 
something that you have been consistently trying to hide from others, but you cannot hide from God. Again, maybe God has been convicting you repeatedly about a specific sin or situation or circumstance in your life that you know is wrong and you know God wants you to deal with and you have just been resisting. You've just put it behind you. You've just tried to get it out of your mind. But you know. But you know. And God in his grace has been struggling with you. God in his grace has given you opportunity time and time again. And perhaps even when things got real bad, you cried out to God and you asked God for his help and he even gave it to you. And as soon as things got better, I have one couple that came to me when they were in the midst of a lot of trouble and difficulty seeking marital counseling. We met a good number of times. They got their act together. They went for a period of time. Their marriage seemed to be good. Then things went downhill and they came back and we went through the whole process again. And they left and then things started going better and so on and they wanted from God again, et cetera, et cetera, and they came back and we did our third round. Over a period of years, this has occurred. I'm asking you this morning, are you going to continually resist the grace of God? Or are you willing to deal with the sin in your life? The sad part is that Jeroboam dies in an unrepentant state. The resisting of God's grace only leads to a harder heart. It only leads to a greater resistance, a deeper resistance. For you see, Jeroboam was learning more and more about God, and the more he learned, the more he resisted. The more you sit under the teaching of the word of God, and the more you are unrepentant, the easier it becomes just to let the word of God roll off your back. And the day will come that you will no longer be convicted. The day will come when you no longer feel the twins of his conscience working upon your, his spirit working upon your conscience. James chapter 1 says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will bless in his doing. 
my challenge to you this morning is, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. But there is a huge difference between sitting under the teaching and responding to it. Take no solace in hearing the Word of God. The solace comes in doing the Word of God. So two challenges. First, if you never accepted Jesus as your Savior, do it today. At the close of this service, I'm going to give you that opportunity once again. And the reason I'm giving that opportunity is not because there's something magical about accepting the Lord in church, but I want you to realize for the last time that if you reject the opportunity, you are rejecting Christ. It's not a matter of indifference. You're making a choice. Either I'm going to accept Christ or I'm not. You're not in the middle. <laughs> There's no middle ground. Either you accept or you reject. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior and God has been dealing with you about something very specific in your life, then deal with it today. Ask God to forgive you and ask God to deliver you. Ask God to help you. Commit yourself to, once again, trying to be what God would have you to be. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your grace and goodness in our lives, and we are grateful that you give us such opportunities. You repeatedly, repeatedly, often, give opportunity for people to repent. And there may be people here this morning that have heard the gospel many, many times, not just the first time, not just the second time, but many times. And yet they know deep down in their heart that they've never actually accepted Jesus as their Savior. I pray that today would be that day. I pray that you would bring conviction. I pray, Lord, that that person would quit resisting and acknowledge their need of forgiveness and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If that is you this morning, if you stand in need of Christ, I ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Uh, I'm going to pray, but not by name. But I, I want to be praying for you as you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Is there anyone this morning that wants to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time? Quickly, would you raise your hand and I'll acknowledge it and you can put it down. Anyone at all? Father, I, I pray for any who are gathered here this morning who, who are under the, the conviction of, of sin that, Lord, they've been wrestling with something for a long period of time. And they have been unwilling to, to deal with it. Lord, I pray that this morning that that time would come and that they would seek your forgiveness and your deliverance. Lord, be with your people, you who know their hearts, you who we cannot hide anything from. Lord, not one of us are pulling the wool over your eyes. May we understand and know that. May we believe that. And so, Lord, may we open our hearts and minds to you and confess our sin and seek your forgiveness and your deliverance. Or it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.